Uh, today we're in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, my name is Chris, by the way. I'm a, one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're new with us, thanks for being with us. I would um, have to apologize. Last Sunday when I got home, my, my wife said, uh, said, I know it's been three months, but you have got to slow down. <laughs> so, um, Paula, yes, I hope, I hope to help you out here. I did drink my coffee, though. She's, 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 doing, she's doing her thing. All right, so... Um, the, uh, so I will do my best. It, it's been three months, and um, I had a lot to say, and you know, and kind of excited, and then I kind of get going, and so it's been a lifelong problem for me is talking fast. So I apologize. I will do my my best to try to slow down. All right, Matthew three. We're going to begin uh, verse thirteen there. Now we're jumping right into Matthew three thirteen. You're like, that's a weird place to start a study. Um, we're going to start there because uh, partly just because we're going to kind of take a survey of Jesus' life. In the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we've also studied the first two chapters, and even up to chapter three last December, and we did the uh, Sermon on the Mount during BI class. So we're kind of going to take some of the, the narrative passages here of, of Jesus as well. So, so we're, uh, the series is titled, Through the King's Eyes, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going we're gonna to strive to see people as Jesus saw people, right? We're going to try to do that. And like students... We're going we're gonna to get our notepad out, as it were, our tablet or whatever you use. You know, we're going to take meticulous notes on our observations you know, that we see, as we see him interact with people. We see what he says, what he does. Uh, and that's important for us. It's important for us because we need to be reminded through the text of Scripture that just how involved God is in our lives, okay? How involved he is in our lives, as well as how important people are to him, and thus, how important people should be to us, okay? And that's kind of our mission, our goal, what we're looking at in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, understand, uh, I, I do not live in a vacuum here. I know the culture in which I, I live in. Uh, we live in a, a cultural moment of uh, chaos, a little bit of unrest maybe, uncertainty. Uh, many, uh, we live in a time where many people are afraid, uh, hurting, feeling hopeless, we, as a church, have a unique and advantageous opportunity. You may not see it that way, <laughs> but it is. A unique and, and advantageous opportunity and moment to be the church. And what is the church? The church is not a, not, a, it's not a building. It's not even a service. It's a people, okay? And it's really the people being the, the hands, the feet, the mouth of Jesus himself to a hurting and pain-filled world, right? That's a, that's a unique opportunity, a unique opportunity that we have as God's people in the places we live. We, we rep the King Jesus, basically. We're like representatives of him to this world, to look after the vulnerable, the weak, and powerless, to communicate to a hurting world the hope of the gospel, Jesus, just, just as Jesus did when he walked this earth. Now, this is no small task. Uh, this is not uh, for the lighthearted. This is not... Uh, for those who prize their own personal maybe income or their own personal comfort or safety. This, in essence, as we'll see in Matthew, to live as Jesus lived is to take up our cross and follow Jesus. That's not easy. That's painful, right? Uh, that's sacrificial. This is what it means when Jesus would say to lose our life for his sake. Um, this is what it means to be the church. Again, not just be the church, and we'll talk about this a lot in Matthew as well as we get into Acts, not just be the church, but be a church that, that plants and starts churches. Um, once we're done with these kind of portraits of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to go to the book of Acts. 
And we're going to see in the book of Acts, very interesting enough, not just the, the people, of, the people of, of Jesus, right, the followers who became the church, not just what they implemented, not just what they were taught by Jesus, but what they caught from Jesus. You know what I mean by that, right? What they saw him do, how they saw him act, what they saw him do and implement, they, they, they interpreted that, even the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, as go plant churches. And again, not go plant services, go plant churches. And what did that mean for them? That meant that they would go into, they would invade cultures. They weren't dropping in and dropping out. They would move in. They would live among people. They would rub shoulders with people. They would touch people just as Jesus did. And they would go into these hard places and they would start churches. And they would move and start churches somewhere else, right? We're going to see that throughout uh, the book of Acts. And so uh, that's super important as we start this study. So as we start in Matthew 3, I want us to see that Jesus came into our world, okay, not to, to just maybe put on a show, you know, with some, some cool miracles. Some people are going to think that in the gospel of Matthew, right? That's what they think that's what he came to do was just either put on a show, help them, you know, heal them, cast out demons, that kind of thing. Much more than that. He, he, he came to do more than give us some, maybe some, some pithy statements on how to live our, our best life now. That's not what he came to do. He didn't come to make our lives comfortable and safe. Jesus actually came to shake up our life. <laughs> he came to shake up our lives. He came to jump into the chaos of our world. He came to reveal God to us. He came to go to a cross for us, right? He came to bear sin for us and remove the barrier between God and man to have a relationship with God and then turn around and live lives of utter abandonment, right, to him in the service of others, so in our passage, we're going to see here that Jesus speaks for the first time in the Gospel of Matthew. That's why we start here. This is where he starts to speak. And I, you say, how do you know that? Because I kind of cheated. I have the red letter Bible, so it, it's, the first red, it's the first red word, so I, I know that's, that has to be the case. Um, and so we're going to see his first actions, his first words, his first, his first public appearance as an adult, his start of what we usually call like the start of his public ministry type of thing. And the first thing he does is he gets baptized. <laughs> and that is, that's kind of crazy. If you're unfamiliar with this, let me, may, may help you with this one. That's kind of crazy, okay? To the person who was watching this was happening, that seems a little bit odd. You say, why is that odd? Because earlier in chapter three, which we did not read, there was this guy that comes on the scene. His name is John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, okay? And John is a, it's a bit strange, all right, just in terms of the cultural understanding of what was maybe normal, okay? Uh, John's baptizing people. He's calling people to confess their sins and get ready for King Jesus who is coming. Okay, that's, that's what his job was. So this made the baptism of Jesus shocking because, first of all, Jesus didn't have any sin. So what's he calling him to? And the point of the baptism was to prepare people for King Jesus, like Isaiah 40 would tell us he was there, he was there to prepare the way of the Lord. That was his mission, his job. Well, here's the guy who is, who is come. Why is he getting baptized? What in the world is he doing? And if it seems strange to you and an odd to you, it was odd to John, too, because he tried to fight it. He's like, this isn't a good idea, okay? And so, so what I want to answer today is why, why was Jesus baptized? Why was the, the first public event of his adult life, the start of his public ministry, this? Why was his first words? Why was this his first words we read here as an adult? Why does, what does this tell us about Jesus' character and his mission? What does it mean for us as a church? And what does it mean for us as followers of Jesus? 
And here's what we'll see. So what we're going to do is we, if we're kind of taking notes, this is what we're going to look at. Three different things here about Jesus' uh, public ministry here. He, he stepped into our world, stepped into the chaos of our world for three reasons. Number one, to identify with us. Okay, we would call that solidarity. We'll talk about that. Number two, to show us God. And that is we're going to talk about what we call community. And lastly, he also, he also came to give us, he was baptized there, to give us a new identity, okay, a new status. So number one, we'll call this solidarity. Jesus identifies with us. Look down at your Bible, verse 13. It says that Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Verse 14, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? <laughs> Verse 15, Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Okay, then he consented. That's a good idea, John. Good idea. <laughs> so, here, so here's John. He's, he's starting to speak as a prophet would speak in the Old Testament. Now, again, you may not think that's a big deal, but understand the time, the place, the situation. There has been 400 what we typically call silent years, okay, from the last prophet of the Old Testament um, Malachi, the Italian prophet. I always like saying that because that's kind of fun. Um, I found out I'm part Italian, by the way, when we did that gene, gene thing. I'm like, oh, I can, that joke now is with me. Um, and so, um, uh, no, uh, Malachi, uh, the uh, last prophet of the Old Testament, to Matthew here in the New Testament, 400 silent years. No prophet, no one speaking for God, at least not officially, okay? And so, um, so that's going on, and we have now John comes on the scene, claims to be speaking for God. You imagine how how crazy that was. Like, that's why people were coming out, right, to this wilderness in the middle of a, in the woods with a river running through it. And, and also, it was interesting because, again, John wasn't considered normal from a cultural standpoint. He didn't fit the cultural vibe, right? The chapter three earlier on describes John as, as uh, I imagine him as kind of like, he's got like a you know, piece of straw inside this mouth, a grasshopper, like half-eaten grasshopper stuck on this side of his teeth, you know. He's got like honey residue coming from his beard because that's apparently what he eats is grasshoppers and honey, you know. And he's got like this, like some kind of camel-haired trending jacket on. I don't know what he's got on there. I mean, he's just very strange looking, um, according to the people. And, um, and so he's there, you know, he's, he's out in the middle of the woods too. And so John is doing his baptism ministry in this Jordan River, calling people to repentance. And he's telling them again, get ready for King Jesus. Get ready for King Jesus. I imagine, imagine kind of you're in the woods, right? You see the, see the trees, you see the river running, hear the river running. And you imagine a long line of people have kind of just kind of lined up, right? Uh, they've all lined up, they're by the river, and I imagine they're starting to whisper. They're whispering to each other, like, I think he's the one, <laughs> right? I think, I think he's the Messiah. I think, I think he is the, I mean, everything that John had, is saying about per, get ready for King Jesus went right over their heads, right? They're like, I think he might be the man, right? And so they're all there, they're all doing that. And realize, again, his ratings were at an all-time high here, right? People were flocking out, people were hearing about him. He's polling very favorably, as it were. And he's even managed to get the, the ire of the, of the religious leaders of the day who don't like him very much. You say, why don't they like him? Well, first of all, John called them a bag of snakes, okay? So they, he, wasn't, he wasn't very nice in terms of what he called them. He was calling them for what they were, uh, as we'll find out later in the Gospel of Matthew. So John's bold, right? He's edgy, he's unafraid, talk of the town, and he's going about his business. Each person's kind of in line, and you can imagine they kind of waddle out to John in the river, you know, they're kind of cringy maybe from the coldness of the water, and they kind of get out to John, and John gives them his mantra, as it were, and says, all right, get ready, uh, you need to confess your sin, okay, you need to uh, get ready for King Jesus, all right, you know, 
All right, now hold on now. Hold your nose if you need to. You're going under. You know, back up. You go and you imagine John going, okay, next. It's like the BMV person up front, you know. Number 863, come on down, you know. And um, come on down, that's like Price is Right. I'm not sure how I get those mixed up. Um, but anyway, so, so they're all just coming out, and he's like, okay, prepare. All right, you need to confess your sin. Prepare for King Jesus. Next one. And he kind of keeps this kind of rhythm going, right? People, person after person. And next person in line, he goes, he goes all right, you need to confess your sin, and you need to prepare. Hold, hold on a second. Um, you're in the wrong line, sir. He's <laughs> like, you... You are King Jesus. Hey, guys, this is what I'm talking about. No, Jesus, you need to stand over here. And I always love in the Gospels how people try to tell Jesus what to do. It's like, yeah, it's probably not a good idea. He's God, okay? And, uh, you know, Peter, don't worry, Jesus, I got you, right? I, no one's going to harm you. I got you, you know? Um, but anyway, so he does that. He has them stand, you know, kind of, you need to stand to the side. Like, this is what this is all about. And I've been telling people about this. And Jesus is like, uh, you need to baptize me. And you imagine John just kind of just perplexed, right? Like, hold on a second, right? We need to be baptized by you, right? Because we are the sinners and you are not. So, so what do you say, Jesus? You want to dunk me? I'll be happy to be dunked, right? Let's do this. And, uh, and I love the language because the language even implies a little bit more than what's written in English here. John continually tried to discourage Jesus from doing this. Like, no, no, seriously, I, I don't. I don't need to do this. You need to baptize me. So we're like almost in an argument here in the middle of this river. And, uh, and so he, it doesn't make sense to John. Why does it not make sense to him? Well, because Hebrews 4, verse 15, speaking of Jesus, says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without what? Without sin, okay? So John knew that. It's like, hold on, I'm... Per- People are supposed to confess their sin. You have nothing to confess. Why am I baptizing you? But Jesus insists, and John baptizes him. Okay, why did Jesus get baptized? Why should the one who takes away the sin of the world submit himself to a ceremony that represents confession and repentance of sin? Think about it. Wouldn't it seem more appropriate if Jesus baptized John or maybe, maybe just at least stood beside John as John baptized people and they're like, he's like, confess your sin, prepare your way for this guy, right? And so that would be the more, more normal way of doing it. But instead, we see Jesus down there in the river. He's not up on the mountaintop talking down, right? He's not even on the shoreline. He's literally in the middle, right, of the river, Uh, with the sinners, not just calling them to repentance, but actually joining them in line, going through the process, not because he needed anything, but because we did. You see, Jesus was showing right off the bat that God has come down not to stand at arm's length to humanity, but to actually jump into the chaos of humanity. This act of baptism was Jesus affirming his solidarity with humanity, and those sinless was joining sinners in their plight, right? Jumping in. And we'll see this throughout the Gospel of John, seeing things through their eyes, experiencing what they're experiencing, right? He goes into, all the way into humanity. And actually, this fulfilled scripture. Isaiah 53, verse 12 says, he, speaking of Jesus, was numbered with the transgressors. A lot of times we only think about that, him at the cross, but that's actually his whole life. He, he was numbered with them. He joined with them, okay? That's amazing. Think about that. Jesus, who is God of the universe, came into the world to identify with humanity, his creation. And to identify with humanity is to identify, no, follow me carefully here, with sin, not be a participant in it, but to be in touch with it in that sense, being around it. 
And you'll see this throughout Matthew. Jesus doesn't run away from sinners. He doesn't stiff arm them away, you know, with his football and like, get away from me. He doesn't do that, right? Not the Captain America shield, like knocking people off. Like they, he's actually going to them instead. I mean, it's shocking in Matthew to read that. God moves towards brokenness and sin and sinners, not run away from them. He moves towards them. And this is, again, Jesus being baptized, he officially stepped into our shoes. There was no other way for, for him to fulfill the mission of God. Jesus could not have just, just basically come down from heaven, got beamed down like Star Trek. I may be dating myself here for a minute, but he could be beamed down, you know, zoop, down he comes, down across, zoop, go back up, right? He, he had to live. You ever wondered that? Like why all this, there's a lot of time in Matthew between chapter two and chapter three where, I don't know, maybe 20, almost 20 years go by. You're like, I don't even know what happened. Like there's nothing written about that. Why, why did he live all this time? To fulfill all righteousness, which we'll talk about in a little bit. He had to live our lives. He had to do it perfectly. And this was the beginning of that journey, the start of his public ministry. You say, so what? So what? So what? <laughs> do you know how crazy, again, this sounds? The holy God of the universe, the one with enough power to stop our heart beating right now, right? Right now. The one whom the angels never cease to sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory, Right? The great I am, the one who brought this entire world into existence with a spoken word and could take it out of existence with a spoken word. That God, okay, that God came down. You're thinking, man, coming down like what, like Thor? Like coming down like, what's he swinging a hammer? Like what's he going to come down like, right? I mean, you think about the ways that this kind of, this God would come down. He comes down as a baby as you're reading Matthew. And then we see him here in the middle of a river with sinners. He came down to live among us, rub shoulders with us. Touch us. And he did not, he did not take it, um, he, didn't, he did it not to take advantage of us. He didn't do it because he needed something from us. He did it to join in in the chaos of life with us. You say, well, that's great. I mean, I, I mean, that makes me feel a little better, I guess. You know, Jesus identifies with us, even got baptized to identify with us. Not sure what all that means, but okay. But you know what, Chris? He never sinned. He never sinned. You just read that. So he doesn't really know, right, what it's like for me. He doesn't really know what it's like to sin, so how can he know my life, what my life is like? How can Jesus feel the weight, the oppression, and the suffering? How can he feel the pain and the tears and the confusion? Let's get real here. I mean, he was God. Isn't that kind of like cheating? You say, oh, I mean, I would never say that. You may have thought that. I've thought that before. <laughs> Isn't that kind of cheating? Like, I mean, he didn't really, I mean, he was God and he was sinless, so I mean, he didn't really experience what we feel Actually, the Bible tells us that Jesus actually not only understands, but actually suffered more, cried greater, and was tempted further than you and I ever will. I've shared this with you, went through the gospel of the gospel, eh, the letter, uh, book of Hebrews, Hebrews 2.18, for because he himself, speaking of Jesus, has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Do you know that Jesus suffered greater under the pressure of sin than you or I ever will. And it's precisely because he never gave in to it. <laughs> he never gave in. Think about it. We give in so easily, right? We're like my dog Dodger. When you get close to him and you, you get close, what does he do? He just rolls over and like belly rub time, right? I mean, it's always like roll over. Every time you get close, oh, here we go. Great guard dog. Anybody comes in, he just rolls over for you. I mean, that's what he does. But that's what we do with sin, right? Sin comes in, we go, roll over, I'm done. Too hard, I can't resist this, too much, too much pressure. 
I'm, I'm just gonna give up, right? This is what we do. That's not what Jesus did, right? He never gave up, right? We cave into our fears and our pride and our lust within moments, but Jesus never gave in. Only those who try to resist temptation know just how strong it is. You ever had that moment where you really fought? <laughs> You're like, I'm not, I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna, I'm gonna bite my lip. I'm not gonna say it, <laughs> right? I'm not, I'm not gonna sin this way or that way. And, and you fight it, and then you just finally, now nah, I'm gonna say it anyway. <laughs> Out the venom comes, right? Um, you know, I, I, I've told you this kind of illustration before, but if we could convert this space, imagine for a moment, into a high-speed wind tunnel, be kind of cool, all right? And you all kind of like, everyone's squeezed into the middle here, we got rid of the pews, and I, I guess it kind of sounds like a, a little evil here of me, but I could control the power on this bad boy, so I would turn this thing up, right? Let's put it 50 miles an hour. Let's turn it up to 100, right? Let's go 150. You know what starts to happen? People start rolling over, right? The wind's too powerful. And you just keep cranking that baby up. And there's a few people who are like, I got this, right? And they're just kind of, they're kind of leaning into it. Eventually, what's going to happen? Everybody's going to tumble back to the back wall. Right? Everyone's going to be plastered back there. Here's the illustration. That's like what sin is to us. Some of us may resist really strong at times, but we eventually give in. We've always, we've at some point have given in because we are sinners, right? Here's the picture. While we're all tumbling back to the back wall, some sooner, some later, but we all do, guess where Jesus is? Still standing here. Full pressure of all the, pre all the wind coming right at him, and he doesn't fall over. Do you understand what that means to say that he was tempted more than we were? Because he never gave in. He felt the full pressure of the wind. We may have given up at 50 miles an hour, 100 miles an hour, 150, whatever. At 500 miles per hour, Jesus is still feeling it. Do you, see, do you see how that relates to how he suffered more than we ever will and resisted sin more than we ever will? And he knows the full pressure of it. I'll give you somebody that I tend to quote a lot. I like, I like this guy, C.S. Lewis. You may not be shocked that I quote him. I love how he put it. Here's how he put it. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it, have, what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. <laughs> They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only, I love how he puts this, the only complete realist. He was more human than we ever have been, right? I mean, he fully resisted it. That's why in the, gospel, in, the, uh, in the prophet Isaiah would say that Jesus would be called a man of what? Sorrows acquainted with what? Grief. Okay, you guys can do this. Okay, stay awake with me here. He was a man of what? Sorrows acquainted with what? All right, all right, we're talking now. This is good. We're, 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 we're on the same, same level. All right, that language means Jesus was perpetually sorrowful, always like his eyes were always watery, right? He was like always in tears because he was always resisting sin for you and me. He was always bearing the burden of our chaos, right? He was tempted to forsake his calling. He was tempted to run away. We're gonna see this in Matthew 4, right? We see it in the Garden of Gethsemane when he asks, is there any other way? Let this cup pass. He was just like us, tempted to give in, tempted to quit, tempted to throw in the towel, but he didn't. He knows the full force of temptation in a manner that we who have never withstood it to the end cannot know or will ever know. Listen, you say, what does all that mean for us today? There's a lot of grieving, a lot of sorrow, a lot of pain, a lot of confusion, a lot of fear around us. 
right? I mean, think about all the things going on around us, right? Am I, am I or a loved one going to die from this coronavirus? Is it even as bad as they say it is? And who is they? Because I don't know, even know who to trust anymore, right? We have an epistemological crisis in our country. Am I going to get shot for being pulled over? Am I going to be shot for standing for in the line of duty, right? These are, these are struggles that people have. What is my future going to be like? What, what about my kids or my grandkids' future? Is this country going to go up in flames like the blast in Beirut? I mean, is that what's going to happen? Like, that's what it feels like. A lot of grief, a lot of sorrow, a lot of pain, a lot of confusion, a lot of fear. My friends, Jesus can relate to all of that, right? He can relate to all of that more than anyone else. Practically for us, this means that if Jesus took the time to walk in our shoes and identify with us in our suffering, then at least... At the very least, right, we should try to walk in another sufferer's shoes instead of chucking rocks at them. In our current climate, we're all so sure about whatever our views are and so sure that whoever those people are and what they, they, they believe. As followers of Jesus, we should be the best listeners, the most empathetic of people, the least vicious with our words because that's what Jesus was to us. So if you're taking the time to talk and listen, right, to other people, Maybe people you disagree with, people you don't like, right? Have you taken time to do that? Try to see through their eyes maybe what's going on, right? That's part of what it means that Jesus identifies with us. Number two, community. Jesus shows us God. So down in verse 16, we read that this is a crazy scene. Jesus is baptized. He immediately went out of the water, it says, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. Would love to have been there this, this day to see this. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And there's a voice, verse 17, that said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Wow. Here we see Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Theology, we call this the Trinity, okay? And we, we believe in one God, okay? We do believe in one God, yet three persons, co-equal, co-eternal, ruling, reigning as one, okay? We're going to do some theology here, and I'm going to show you how practical the Trinity is. And Jesus was baptized to show us God. Now, this is a rare scene in Scripture, with the Trinity all showing up at the same time. We see Jesus baptized, we see the Father speaking, and we see the Holy Spirit coming down, right? We see the Father, we have the Father affirming, we have Jesus committing, and we have the Holy Spirit empowering, right? They're all three doing something in the midst of this one scene. And they're in perfect harmony, and they're in perfect unity. And this is part of the whole mission of God invading our chaotic world in the person and work of Jesus. He is right off the bat showing us who he is, and showing us his relationship to the Father and the Holy Spirit and, and why that's so important. Matter of fact, later on, Jesus would pray this in John 17. He said, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them, right? That they may join in, basically, is what he's saying. Now, notice in our text what the Father says. I always tell you, like, hey, always ask the question. It's good to ask the question, what does it not say, okay? And I thought about that, like, wow, what are all the things that the Father speaks for the first time, right? All the things he could have said. Hasn't spoken 400 years. You'd expect some maybe great revelation, you know? I am God Almighty, something like that. Some life-altering truth. He could have said, hey, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, Maybe some strong commandment, uh, you need to repent like John said, okay? Could have said that. Or some rebuke, you need to listen to Jesus or face the consequences. Something along those lines could have been said and all would have been appropriate and good. But instead, we get something we, we probably didn't expect because it has nothing to do with us, actually, when the Father speaks. He doesn't talk to us, right? 
We witness that he says, this is my son. What does the language say? Whom I'm well pleased. What is he meaning by that? This is my son. I love him. <laughs> That's his announcement. This is my son. I love him. I'm so proud of him. Like, I love him. This is fantastic. That's what he is saying to us, but not really to us, saying to him. <laughs> so we witness the affirmation and love the father has for the son. Now, why? Out of all the things in the world the father could have said, why did he say this? Because he was showing us the very core and essence of God. He's telling us that the love of God for God is the most fundamental thing you and I need in a chaotic world. And you're like, well, what? <laughs> the love of God for God is the most fundamental thing we need to know in the midst of our chaotic world. We need to know the love of God for God. We need to know that. Just like, like kids, they need to know, hey, mom and dad are good, right? You didn't know that. I've given you this illustration before, right? There's something secure and satisfying in hearing God's love for God. Something satisfying about that. If I were painting a picture of this scene with the water and the Holy Spirit coming down, the Father speaking, it'd probably, first of all, be a very poor painting, okay? I can draw a mean stick figure and maybe some Bob Ross trees, but that's about as far as I can go. And so you imagine the scene going on. But if I, if I entitled the scene, my title of this whole thing would be, everything's going to be Okay. Everything's going to be okay. You're like, what? why would you label it that? I would have never thought of labeling it that. Because in the midst of a chaotic world where everything seems to be unwinding and falling apart, where seemingly everyone is throwing rocks at each other and no one can say anything without being attacked, where people are suffering, dying, and scared, we see this picture. And what are we reminded of? We're reminded that God, God loves God. God loves God. And that everything is going to be okay because, you know what, everything's okay with God. <laughs> He has not lost his mind like much of our world has. He has not thrown his hands up in disgust. There's, there's something settling and just settling and seeing the relationship that God has with God. I told you before that children love it and their parents love each other. There's something secure about that. You know, my kids, you know, when Sarah and I in the kitchen kissed, they would come running. They don't do that anymore. They used to hug our legs, and now it's like, ooh, gross. I have teenagers now. They don't do that anymore. But when they were little... We'd be in the kitchen and be like, family hug time, you know, and we'd, we'd, we'd hug each other, Sarah and I, and we'd kiss, and all of a sudden you could hear, like, the little, little feet all over the house just scampering, like they're running in all over the place, and then boom, they come, and they just go whoosh, right, and they wrap themselves around our legs, you know? Why do they do that? Because that's, oh, that's good. I like, I like to see that. that. There's something affirming and settling, and that mom and dad are good, right? Um, when they were really little, we used to do uh, the couch time thing I've told you about before, right? We'd sit and look at each other on the couch, because it was chaos and life was busy. It's the only time we could look at each other when you have like four kids, four and under. It's kind of crazy if you've ever been there or you are there. We, we relate, okay? And, um, and we would sit on the conversation. We'd sit, try, to have a, try to have a conversation at first, right? The first conversation, we'd sit down on the couch. We'd look at each other. And we didn't really talk about much because the goal was just to try to show the kids that like this is important between mom and dad. You know, and they're jumping on the couch and they're grabbing our faces, you know, and trying to pull them away from each other and pull our faces towards them, right? They're, they're attacking each other and they're crying. Blood's flying. No, blood's not flying. But you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's what it feels like, right? It's like World War III just happened in our house when mom and dad try to sit down and talk. Anybody else relate to that one? Okay, you know what I'm talking about? Okay. But eventually, okay, <laughs> over time, eventually they started to learn, like, okay, this is a good thing. And eventually they started bringing their toys and they started, instead of fighting us, they started sitting down at, 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 in the floor and playing with their toys. And all of a sudden everybody's kind of laying around the, in the living room playing with their toys or mom and dad are talking. Right? There was something about that that meant that, hey, in their little world that communicated to them that everything's okay. My toy may have broken, right? 
TV may not be working for cartoons today. <laughs> Whatever it may be in their little world that's like, you know, completely chaotic, everything's okay right now because mom and dad are okay, okay? And so, so when God makes God the center, we feel secure, right? We're not the center of the universe. He is, and that's where our joy is found. Now, now this announcement of God's love for God, this moment of praise of the Father for the Son also tells us that God doesn't need us. Now, that may not be very encouraging to you, but that's what it's saying because he didn't say anything to us. He said it to the son, right? We're, we're, we are not going to affect his love for his son no matter how chaotic we make his world. We can hurl insults at Jesus, and we did. We can punch Jesus, and we did. We can even kill Jesus, and we did, and that still would not deter the father's love for the son because it doesn't have anything to do with us. Does that make sense? Do you see how secure that is? When everything, when we're chucking at each other and fighting, it's like, okay, God is still good with God. And that means in the universe, everything's going to be okay. Okay. I love it. Acts 17 says this, the, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. Think about it. God has God. He doesn't need anything or anyone else. He doesn't even need us, and that's good. Because we can't, that means we can't ultimately change him. He's immutable. We can't change him. Our good, you know, being good, being bad, whatever, cannot affect his love and the mission of God positively or negatively. This means God didn't create us because he was lonely. He didn't create us because he was somehow inadequate. He didn't create us because he was missing something. Like, ah, if I just have these creatures, then I'll feel better about myself. That's not, he is in perfect harmony, perfect joy, perfect unity as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So why did he create us? 1 John 4, 8. God is what? Love. That's pretty simple. Some nice memory verse right, right there, right? Now, what that does not mean, he's not saying that love is important to God. That's not what John, when he wrote this, is saying, though it is important to God. It doesn't mean that God really wants us to love, though that is also true. It doesn't even mean that God does loving things, though that is also true. What he's saying is speaking to the very nature of God, that there is a continuous outpouring of love, communication, and oneness because God is a relational community of love. It's speaking of the very essence of God, the core of God. Thus, God does not create the world in us out of emptiness, but out of fullness, God wasn't lonely and made man. He has never been lonely and adequate and sought to achieve fullness by incorporating us into himself. That's not why. It also means God doesn't love us out of need or out of pity just because it's just the fact that he just loves us because that's what he does. We know we don't feel loved when someone loves us out of pity or loves us out of a, maybe a, a void they want to fill in themselves. So they, you feel used, Right? You feel used, you feel weak. That's not why God loves us. God loves us an overflow of love he has in himself. I love the way Jonathan Edwards put it. It's like God's like an overflowing fountain. It doesn't overflow because he has to, but because he just can't help it. <laughs> it just overflowed into creation. The love that God has for God overflowed into creating our world. This helps us understand the mission of Jesus. He came to bring us into this dynamic, loving relationship that God has with God. Now, I've told you this one a million times, and you guys are going to memorize this old Greek word, all right? The church fathers, way back, they call them fathers. It may, it may sound kind of strange, but basically church pastors, leaders, theologians over the centuries used to call, uh, instead of using the word trinity, so we use in English, they used a word in Greek called parakoresis. You guys probably know what that means by now because you've heard me say this a million times, right? Para is around. Caresis is where we get our English word choreography. If you've never heard this, this is really strange to you. It means one who dances around himself. 
That's how they referred to God, as one who dances around himself? That seems a very, very strange definition. And in essence, what they were saying, they saw the Trinity in a kind of dance that they delight and serve one another, right? Dance around one another, serve one, defer to one another. That's why you hear Jesus say over and over again in the Gospels, right? Not, I didn't come to do my what? My will, but the will of him who sent me. I'm, I'm deferring, I'm deferring, I'm deferring. Father's deferring, son's deferring, Holy Spirit's deferring in love towards one another. And so that, that, that's what, that kind of dance is where they delight and serve each other. And Jesus came to bring us into that dance, okay? Bring us into that relationship and then turn us outwards so that we actually turn to incorporate others into that dance. Jesus was baptized not just to show solidarity, identify with us. He was baptized to show God and the community of love that's at the center of God's being and to bring us into that loving community, the dance of God. And in turn... He then calls us to stop standing still, right? Stop standing still and trying to make the world and everyone revolve around us, okay? Uh, it's not my world and you just live in it. Instead, God is calling us to take the love, the peace, the relationship we have with God, share it with others, to actually start to move around others and implement doing exactly what God does with God, we are to do with other people, to serve them, to lose our life for Jesus' sake is how he would say it later. So much of our misery, our spite and bitterness in this chaotic world is from standing still. Not delighting in God and not delighting in serving others as God has called us to do. That's why God calls his people to move out, right? And serve instead of standing still, instead of, instead of being, even doing religious things. This, this, you may have not read this before. This may be shocking. I'll read this and we'll go to our last point. Isaiah 58, listen to this. Start speaking about fasting. Now, when you think of fasting, what do you think of? Right? You think of absence of food, right? You, I'm going to abstain from this for a period of time, seek God in prayer, all that. It's all, it's all good stuff, okay? That's a good thing to do. Listen to this. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? That means to go pray. You're thinking, yeah, I think that's what, you, <laughs> I, think that's what I, I understand fasting to be. Will you call this a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord, like do, the, do this fasting and pray and do the things we do as Christians, is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Well, that's not what I thought of fasting being. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the, see the naked here, to cover him and to not, not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then... So if you do this, show your light break forth like the dawn. What is that? It's like your eyes are open, right? That's light. Break forth like the dawn, and your, your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer, and, and, and you shall cry, and he will hear. He will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the point of the finger, the speaking of wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfied the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday sun, basically, right in the middle of the day. You see that? It's like the lights come on. There's life there. By what? Turning around and, and, and serving others, right? That's what he's saying. Implementing what we see in God, that we've been brought into that relationship. Now turn around. That's why Jesus would say, I did not come to be served, but to what? To serve, right? That, that's what we are to do as a response. Lastly, number three identity. Jesus gives us a new status. Verse 15, so uh, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Okay, 
This whole baptism of Jesus not only shows solidarity that Jesus has with us, not only shows us the community of our Trinitarian God, but Jesus ultimately got baptized to give us a new status, to literally transfer his righteous life to our life. Right? We need not just the death of Jesus to wash away our sins. We need the righteousness of Jesus to be, now this is a theological word, imputed to us. So we have a new identity. Okay? We need the death of Jesus, but we need the life of Jesus. So when we talk about the gospel, it's basically Jesus lived the life. Right? I couldn't live and then died the death. I should have died to save me. I need both of those. Not just his death, I need his life. You say, why is that? Well, to be washed of your past sins is great. But if you are like me, you know there's going to be some new ones coming along the line, okay? Maybe a lot of them, okay, that are going to be added to the ledger. So we need not just our clothes washed, we need a whole new outfit that won't ever get stained, right? That's what we need. We need the righteousness of Christ. That's what's pictured in this baptism. Just think of what baptism signifies to us. We do it when we first come to know Jesus as a way of identifying with Jesus in his death and resurrection. It's a picture of what our faith in Jesus is all about. It's about Jesus' death and resurrection becoming ours. His death, our death, right? His resurrection, our resurrection. So in Jesus' baptism, he has taken on himself the obligation to fulfill all righteousness so that he might be a perfect substitute for us. One of the greatest things that ever happened at the cross, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a pastor over in England back in the um, 1900s, he called it the great exchange. The great exchange. And I love that, how, how that's put. What, what does that mean? Jesus got my sin, I got his righteousness. Jesus got my ugliness, I got his beauty. Jesus got my brokenness, I got his wholeness. Right? That is a, a beautifully unfair thing. Isn't it? It's a beautifully unfair thing. Unfair for, unfair for Jesus because he got the bad end of the deal. I got the good end of the deal. That's why I love how Paul summarizes the gospel here in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him, speaking of Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. We might become righteous in Jesus. Not our own righteousness. We can't have our own. We can't build our own. But we can get it from Jesus. Okay? Because of this exchange, by faith in Christ, we get a new status. We become what the Bible calls sons of God, daughters of God, children of God. John 1.12 says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So in Christ, when you put your faith in him, you, are a, you become a son, a daughter of God. And it's not something you will be one day or something you work towards being hopefully one day or, else, or even something you hope to have and then not lose it but something you currently are and always will be. You belong to God now, which means you're no longer defined by what you do or don't do or by what people say or don't say or how good your performance is or how bad it is. You're defined by his love for you as his child. That's the beauty. That's the great exchange. That's the beauty of the gospel. Our identity has changed. Paul put it this way in Galatians 4. He says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. You're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. For those who put their faith in Christ, understand this that Jesus went to the cross, took your place, gave you his status, so that now you are a son of God. And I use that very specifically, a son of God. When the Bible speaks of 
us as sons, it's saying that we get the esteemed position that the son had, right? That we get the full inheritance. We get the, as it were, the family name. We get, we, there's no second-class citizens in the family. There's no privilege and unprivileged. There's no inner circle, outer circle. There's, we're all treated like sons. We're all treated like the firstborn son, okay? All of us. We get the inheritance of the Holy Spirit. We get eternal life. We get power to live, a new life, pattern after Jesus. And I'm not saying, understand this. Make sure I'm, you're not misunderstanding me here. I'm not saying you become God. I'm not saying you become divine or somehow equal to Jesus in that way. I'm saying that you've, you've been gifted a new position, the same position that Jesus enjoyed, right? The same status as a son, and so now follow me here. Because you are in Jesus now, that's one of Paul's favorite terms he'll use in his writings. Because you are a son of God by faith alone and Christ alone now, that means that what we read earlier, that, of, that statement that the father said to the son, guess what? It applies to you now. <laughs> Reread Matthew 3, 17 and put yourself in there. Listen to it again. A voice from heaven said, because we now, because of our faith in Christ, receive the righteousness of Christ, the status of Christ, we're now sons of God. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Put your name in there and see how radical that statement is. Right? This is Amy with whom I'm well pleased. This is Jack with whom I'm well pleased. This is James with whom I'm well pleased. That's shocking. I mean, I hear that and say, but that he know. <laughs> It doesn't sound right. I mean, doesn't he really know? I mean, come on. But that's how God treats his children. He does know. The thing is, he knows us better than we know ourselves, right? He knows us all the way to the bottom, yet he can say this because it has nothing to do with us and our performance, but everything to do with Jesus and his performance, the Father loves you like he loves Jesus. The Father is pleased with you as he's pleased with Jesus because of Jesus, not because of you. <laughs> changes everything. I mean, it completely changes everything. That means though, though you are a sinner before man, God sees you as righteous before him. And though you trudge through the muck and the mire of life and you get all dirty, God sees you as clean. And though your sins are as scarlet, God sees those sins as white as snow. And though you may be oppressed, mistreated, seen less than, God sees you as free, clean. It's all because of Jesus. This is that grace we talked about last week with John Newton writing Amazing Grace. Right? That, that's, what he, that's why he would say that. Two things I know when I got old. Christ is a great Savior. I'm a great sinner. Right? It's a new status we have. This gives us power to fight sin, to live like Jesus, to give of ourselves, to reach this world for Christ and serve others with utter abandonment. How? Because we don't have to fit a label, guys. This is so important in our culture to, to talk this, to, to talk, preach this to yourself about your identity in Christ. We don't have to fit a label or an identity that our culture or others try to throw on us, right? We're free to serve others because we have an identity that's better than whatever they want to label me as, okay? We live in a culture full of labels, don't we, right now? Where an identity is prescribed to you no matter what you say, no matter what you do. Okay? It's like playing the kids' game uh, Four Corners. There's only two corners now. <laughs> like you're, you're in one corner or the other. I don't care if it's four corners. They don't exist. Polarization is a new sport in our culture, and being triggered is a new way to play the game. You either swim in certain streams, and you get labeled with everything, right? I mean, think about it. I'm, I'm just, just be straightforward with you, right? You either swim in the stream of Black Lives Matter movement, or you, you swim in the stream of Make America Great Again movement, and the result is either you're a Marxist or you're a racist. Right? It just, just goes with it depending on what stream you're placed in. 
And you also go to the mask wearing thing, right? You're either a mask wearer who's spreading fear of non-existent diseases and scared of death, or you're a non-mask wearer who doesn't care about people uh, die around you from worst disease in the history of the world. I mean, that's, that's kind of the polar extremes, right? That's what you get labeled, you get thrown into those places, and it's really uncomfortable, right? And not fair. Everyone around us has a label for you, right? And you read the Gospel of Matthew, guess what? Jesus got labeled. <laughs> Jesus got labeled a lot, right? Everyone's trying to give Jesus an identity. Sinner, glutton, revolutionary, prophet, miracle worker, fraud, you name it. They called him all kinds of things. And by the time we get to the cross, you've got the conservative religious leaders, they don't like him. And the liberal political leaders, they don't like him either. No one liked Jesus. Why? Because he didn't fit. He didn't fit anywhere. He didn't fit any label or any category. He loved the truth more than the most conservative person did and group did. And yet he loved people more than the most liberal group would have been. My friends, we don't fit any categories our world tries to mold us into. And throughout church history, understand this. When the church married any movement or any party or any category in its culture, guess what? The church lost its power. It can't speak to anything anymore, right? It can't speak to it. It lost its voice. It's when we're an anomaly, when we don't fit. We're strangers and sojourners, right? Those are some of the statements that we get. The people of our world, uh, we understand that. When Christians had an identity that was wrapped up in Christ, not things, not ideas, not people of the world, if the gospel took off, people's lives were changed and cultures were affected for good. We live in such a moment as this. We live in such a moment as this. That makes me a little excited about the chaos around us because I'm like, okay, the gospel will get much more clearer now. No more, no more fogginess, like, it's going to get clearer. Friends, we have a new status in Christ. And God says to you, you are my beloved sons and daughters in whom I'm well pleased. And that identity is what matters. We've also been brought into the Trinity, brought into a relationship, brought into this dance, this community that is God. And he's calling us to bring other people into that dance and make our lives about others. And we have a God that walks with us every step of the way, through all the chaos and the uncertainty and the fear, who struggles, who knows our struggle, lived our life, that we couldn't live, died a death we should have died to save us, okay? As we conclude, we normally, okay, in other days of life, we would have communion, okay? We're not doing that, okay? We look forward to getting back to that one day soon, but we're not doing communion, but I still want the, the spirit of communion to still exist. And what I mean by that is, is let's just take a moment of quiet. I'm gonna stop talking. Thoughts that are racing through your head, lay them out before God. If there's conviction, repent, there's praise, give praise, right? If there's questions, ask questions of God. Like, take a moment to be silent before God, wrestle with the text, wrestle with what is said in Matthew, okay? Do like David in Psalm 139, search me, O God, know me, try me, know my anxious thoughts, see if there be any wicked way in me. If you don't know Christ, if this whole thing is weird to you, and you're like, I don't understand, we would love to talk to you, okay? I'll be in the back after service, would love to talk to you. Don't feel the pressure to think you need to pray or make some words up that you don't even know. It's okay. Just sit quietly, okay? Uh, let me pray for us as we have this time. Father, thank you for the opportunity to reflect on the baptism of Jesus. Thank you that you jumped into the fray. You jumped into the chaos of our world. And it is chaotic, God. Uh, a lot of times we think we'd rather just shove our head in the sand and just put our hands over our ears and just all the noise just to be quiet. But God, we live in this world and you've called us to live in it. You've called us to, to worship you, love you, and to turn around and take the relationship that we have with you and to, and to turn around and serve others and see them come brought into that relationship too. Thank you for our new identity. Thank you for what we have in Christ. Help that to settle, to be the rock that kind of just, that doesn't move. 
when everything around us and the, the, the current of the world is just shifting left and right and up and down, that God, that rock at our feet doesn't move, that we are in Christ. And there's nothing someone can say or not say, do or not do, that would change that. Help us to stay on that rock. Help us to feel that rock at the bottom of our feet. Right, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.